0: Truly, it is an honor. I consider it a privilege to share God's word with God's people. Thank God for Mark, Pastor Toombs, and uh, this church, Christ Covenant Church, for the invitation. Uh, It is always good to do anything for the Lord. scripture reading in Genesis is actually the background of the scripture that I have selected uh, concerning sola gratia. So turn to Romans chapter 5, and we will read verses 12 through 21. And while you turn in there, I thank God for my son being with me today and my wife and daughters, as well as my mother. Sitting next to her. From chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. It reads, "Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's disobedience, by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the Lord have blessings on the readers' ears and doers of his word. Through these scriptures, I want to focus on the ground or the foundation of sola gratia. I believe a thorough definition of sola gratia is found on the back of the programs. It's a Latin phrase, developed... During the Reformation, that simply taught we are saved by grace alone. Now, this exact this exact phrase, we are saved by grace alone, or salvation comes by grace alone, and those exact words are not found in the Bible. But we conclude, just as the reformers concluded, through the study of the old and new testament that this is God's method of saving sinners. By the way, eternal security, the trinity, these words are not found precisely in the Bible. These are theological terms. They are theological phrases. It is the theology that is what we believe through Scripture is God's discourse or truth. So one of the five reformers' theology and 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 prayerfully, our theology is sola gratia, which I will try to deal with this evening. I believe in order to appreciate more deeply the truth of sola gratia, we must understand why or what is the ground or cause of us being saved by grace alone. A lot of times we can hear something over and over again, but never fully appreciate why we are saved or this great truth. You know, we sing the song Amazing Grace but grace is only as amazing as the knowledge of the depth of our sin. If you sense if your sense of sin is not great, meaning you think you're a pretty good person in light of a holy God if your sense of need is not great For God, then grace to you is not amazing. What Romans 5, 12 through 21 shows us is the greatness and depth of our sin and the greatness and depth of our need for God, who alone offers grace to believers. Now, what does salvation by grace alone mean? It means that grace is the only means by which we are saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal hell. By attaching alone to grace, that means, and and the Bible teaches it, that if anything else is attached to the means of salvation other than grace alone, then according to the Bible, that's not salvation. Someone will say, I thought faith saved us. I thought we had to have faith in order to be saved. Faith is an instrumentality. It is the agency, it is the vehicle that drives us to salvation. Grace declares us righteous before God. Faith is what we are given in order to obtain the righteousness of God. We never read in the Bible that we are saved by faith. We only read we are saved through faith. Ephesians 2:4 says, "We have been saved by grace." Ephesians 28:9 says, "We have been saved by grace through faith." Titus 3 verse five says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, that is grace, he has saved us. And why do I say that is his grace, even though the Bible says mercy? Because verse 7 of Titus chapter 3 goes on to say that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In relation to salvation... Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as, as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is, is accounted for righteousness. This truth is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Because all other religions require some system of merits, some works on the part of the individual who is seeking heaven. But in Christianity, it is clear that we are either saved by the law on the basis of works or by grace on the basis of faith. Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 bears that out and clearly teaches us that we are saved by grace on the basis of faith. Sola gratia is simply acknowledging that the Bible teaches that the totality of our salvation is a gift of grace from God. This doctrine is important because it correctly communicates the fact that God saves us because of his mercy and goodness and not because of anything that makes us desirable to God or worthy to be saved. And again I stress we cannot grasp how amazing God's grace and salvation is until we first grasp how sinful we truly are and how much we need God. So sola gratia or grace alone is relevant because it is the central doctrine of the Christian religion so far as salvation is concerned. Everything else in the scriptures, dealing with salvation is foundational in the sense of the incarnation. It's important, but it's foundational. The sufferings of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection are these things are in all of these things are laying the foundation. They are the foundations of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. So that the things that we, that, that, that have to do with the ministry of the Lord Jesus are necessary for this work of salvation by grace alone. This doctrine all, uh, uh, of salvation by grace alone overthrows any doctrinal system that salvation comes by some works or any works because it lays stress upon the fact that our standing before God is not accomplished by any works of our own, even which is unpopular today, by an act of our own free will. But it's ultimately traceable to the work of God in the work of the Holy Spirit in the bringing of, uh, of the just faith in Christ on the ground of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The term for being saved that the Bible uses is Justification. That's what being saved means. We are justified. And justification does not mean to be made righteous, but rather to be declared righteous. Luther once said, we are at the same time just and sinners. The fact that we are justified does not change the fact we are still sinners. That's what sanctification is for. To to cleanse us and make us righteous but that work will never be done until we are glorified and have our spiritual bodies. We are justified but the work of sanctification is necessary to bring us in our state to our status before God. Why the doctrine of sola gratia? Why is there a need to be saved by grace alone. It is, the, it is because of the doctrine of imputation. I am convinced that the doctrine of imputation explains the ground for the doctrine of sola gratia. Imputation is one of the great theological words. I believe it is fair to say that if we do not understand what imputation means, we really do not understand or have a good understanding of salvation by grace alone. Imputation enables us to understand how we may have the righteousness of God and how we may have it righteously. What does impute mean? It comes from the Greek word, and is translated in different ways, especially in the book of Romans. It's translated, for example, in Romans 2, to think. It's translated in Romans 4 and Romans 9, to count. It's translated in uh, to impute in Romans chapter 4. we just seen it here in Romans chapter 5. And it's translated to reckon in Romans chapter 6. So imputation means to regard as or reckon as. And to spell it out in theology, it means to make an effectual grant of righteousness to another person on the ground of Christ's representative work. So imputation is that act by which God reckons to us the righteousness of God through the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the Puritans named John Owen says positively, The imputation is an act of God, of pure grace, of his mere love and grace, whereby upon the consideration of the mediation of Christ, he makes an effectual grant and donation of a true, real, and perfect righteousness, even that of Christ himself, unto all that do believe, and according it as theirs on his own gracious act, and accounting it as theirs, on his own gracious act, both absolves them from sin and grants them right and title unto eternal life. So imputation is to make an effectual grant of righteousness to another on the ground of Christ's representative work. Every person who has been saved has had imputed to him or her the righteousness of God on the basis of what Christ has accomplished on the cross as our representative. That's imputation. That is the good news. However, when we carefully study the Bible, there are three great acts of imputation. First, there's the imputation of Adam's sin to men. That is the bad news. Second, there is the imputation of the believer's sin to Christ. And third, the great act, the third act of imputation is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believers. Now, these three acts of imputation are spelled out in some detail in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And we can only briefly review it. And I pray uh, we will understand and, and be edified as a result. Paul says, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to stay there. Paul says, for this cause, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... And so death passed upon all men because all sinned. Those opening words of chapter 5, for this cause, or on account of this, the point is that since there is salvation by one man, as Romans 5 verses 1 through 11 shows, there is a likeness between Adam and Christ. Salvation is through the one man. Condemnation is through the one man. In the case of the first Adam, sin, condemnation, and death have come to mankind because of the act for which Adam was responsible in the Garden of Eden. Righteousness, justification, and life have come to others by quality of the activity of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, on the cross at Calvary. So Paul says there is an analogy between these two, the first Adam and the last Adam. What the first Adam did was to plunge us into sin, condemnation, and death. What the last Adam has done in the cross makes it possible for believers to have righteousness and justification and life. Now he says in verse 12, In the opening part of the verse For this cause Just As through one man Sin entered into the world That's the origination of sin and death But notice the word entered Is very significant Because it says here That sin did not really originate Or begin in the garden of Eden It entered the human race in the Garden of Eden, but it did not begin in the Garden of Eden. Paul doesn't tell us a great deal about these matters concerning things which we are very curious about. He does, however, say that it was in the Garden of Eden that sin made its entrance into the human race through the temptation of Adam and Eve. So sin entered and death for mankind began. Then he speaks of the first great imputation, which is the imputation of sin and death. He says, and death through sin, and so death passed to all men. So as a result of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden, death has passed to all men. In other words... From entrance of sin into the human race in the Garden of Eden, there has now come the penetration of sin into every human heart. And what Adam did in the Garden of Eden has made this whole world of which every one of us is a part, one vast cemetery. It is an amazing thing what Adam accomplished, if you can call it that, in the Garden of Eden. Talk about a negative work. That is probably the greatest negative work that was ever accomplished by anyone. Now Paul then comes to the point which there has been a great deal of controversy. He says in the last part of verse 12, which contains the foundation of the imputation of sin, for or because all sinned. This has been a theological battleground. This is a controversial passage, and I will summarize some of the beliefs about the last part of this verse because I don't believe time will allow me to really explain it all in detail. Some believe for or because all sin means that everybody has committed personal sin. That sounds good. It sounds right. Since everybody has committed personal sin, death has therefore spread to all men. Therefore, they believe we are not responsible for any sin, but the sin that we personally commit by an act of our free will. That we are faced with a test, but everyone has failed. Now think about that for a moment. You know, when people come up with their views, it it sounds good on the surface. Think about that for a moment. If every student in school are presented with the test and everyone fails, and I mean fails miserably, no one gets it, then you would have to conclude that there is something wrong with the test. Nobody gets it, everybody fails miserably. Every time they take it. Jesus Christ did not fail the test because he did not have the nature or seed of Adam. Adam did not pass sin on to Christ. He was born of the Holy Spirit through the seed of the woman. But everybody who comes through Adam has failed and the reason we have failed is because his sin was imputed to us. Not because we were faced with the test and didn't make it. Not because we personally sinned, but because he actually imputed that sin to us. Now, <laughs> the second view says that when, G- when when Adam sinned in the garden, we sinned ultimately because we're all in Adam. You get your family tree and keep tracing it back, 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 back. You're going to eventually come to Genesis. We're all in Adam. That is, when he committed his act of sin, you and I being in him physically are regarded as having committed that sin ourselves. So that we are specifically guilty because of being in his seed. And this is how they try to explain, for all have sinned. Now it is true that the one act of Adam has affected his seed. And sin and guilt are related to the act of the one man. Which is what Paul says here. But the view that says all sinned when Adam sinned, because we are in him, does not satisfy because there is a specific analogy between Adam and his followers by this view that is not the same as the relationship between Christ and those that are in him. And Paul makes an analogy between the two that is similar. Stay with me here. What I mean by that is simply this. That when we are reckoned to be righteous in Christ, we are reckoned to be righteous by the act of the Lord Jesus, and we're not physically in him. We're not physically in him when he accomplishes his redeeming work for us. But according to this view, we are physically in Adam. And Paul draws an analogy between Adam and Christ. And the analogy does not hold, if you hold that view. We are physically in Adam when Adam falls, but we are not physically in Christ when he is victorious, when he accomplishes his saving work, and yet we are justified by what he does. So the analogy breaks down. Our righteousness is not personally our righteousness. Furthermore, how can we possibly act before we exist? We are not even persons when Adam sins in the Garden of Eden. And so the attempt to avoid the obvious criticism, uh, criticism we are held responsible for something that we, not do, that we didn't do is not satisfied by, the, by this interpretation because we then ask the question, how can we possibly act before we really existed? And why are we held responsible for Adam's first sin? This is a good question, I think. Why are we held responsible for Adam's first sin if we're in him? and not held responsible for the later sins he did. If the relationship is simply a physical relationship, why just the one act of eating of the the fruit of the tree? Why not all the rest? Whereas the Bible does not seem to say anything other than we are responsible for the first act of Adam. The 14th verse of Romans chapter 5, however, is the termination of this particular view. It solves this view. It is the Achilles heel of realism. Because it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned. So there's no way that we were all in Adam and we sinned when he sinned. Because this verse says, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. But you see, according to realism, everybody does their sin in the same way. Paul makes a distinction then between those who sin in the likeness of Adam's offense and those who don't sin in the likeness of Adam's offense. And evidently, I believe it's a reference to infants and those who do not have all their senses. I don't know if it's politically correct, but... We used to call them retarded. I don't know what we call them today. Now, if it is true that we are guilty when Adam sinned, then there is a distinction possible in types of sin. So realism does not enable us to understand what Paul means when he says, because all sin. He does not mean that we sin because we were in Adam. By the way, we were in an Adam, and he was our natural head, and we do not deny, d- deny that. We simply deny that that is the ground of our imputation of sin, condemnation, and death. Some believe, and I'll hurry on, that we inherited Adam's fallen nature. And that's what it means when it says, because of all sin." We did inherit Adam's fallen nature, but inheriting his corrupt nature is not the ground of the imputation of the guilt of sin. Look at verse 12. Paul says, and death spread to all men because all have sinned. But now look at verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Notice the condemnation is linked to one transgression. Not inherited nature. Verse 19, For it's through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So you see that in Paul's account, the death that we die is due to one trespass. And that one trespass is the one act of Adam in the Garden of Eden. So we are not depraved because we inherited it from Adam. Evidently, we have some previous guilt if we if we are each given a depraved nature at birth well what can be what, what what can the previous guilt be but the guilt that arises out of Adam's first sin in the garden of eden finally we're coming to what we call immediate imputation an immediate thing that happened to all of us once he sinned another term for this is federalism When we talk about federalism, we mean covenant relationship. Federalism. Federalism contends that Adam was a representative, a federal head for all men, that this arrangement was consummated by God in the Garden of Eden, and that Adam was given certain promises and he was given certain threats. And the fact That Adam was a federal head is confirmed by the fact that the threats are carried out on all of the members of Adam's descendants. Adam was told, in the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. But the facts are that not only has Adam died, but everybody else has died since that time, except for those exceptions where God has overruled his own law in the case of Enoch and Elijah. So the contention of the immediate imputation is that men have stood their probation in Adam. And his act is our act. Not simply because we were in him physically, but because he was our federal head. He was our representative. When he fell... Immediately, that is, without any necessary participation through the transmission of a corrupt nature. When he failed, all of Adam's descendants are declared to be under sin, condemnation, and death. So that the judgment flows immediately from Adam to every one of us, not through the transmission of the sin nature. That is why it is called immediate imputation. (coughs) The argument for this particular interpretation of many, I'll just summarize. I mentioned the promises and threats to the race given to Adam or realized in the race. It also explains our birth in sin, for we read in Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead In trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 of Ephesians 2, among them we also formerly lived according to the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature or by birth children of wrath, even as the rest." That explains immediate imputation. Why were we born in sin? I believe this, and I hope it's uh, it's been clear, explains the depth of our sin. We are born in sin because we are guilty of Adam's first sin. Another thing, in Romans 5.12, we find that Paul here says that all die because all sinned. Listen to this. Now we're going to stay within the same context. Verse 12 says, All die because all sin." So death spread to all men because all sin. But if you were listening or read it again, in verses 13 through 19, five times he says that all die because one man sinned. In one text, he says, all die because all sinned. In the other text, he says, all die because one man sinned. He never says, all die because all acted in Adam. He could have said that if he was a realist, but he did not. So the same fact is expressed in terms of plurality and singularity. All die because all have sinned. All die because one man has sinned. The simplest explanation is that Adam was our representative. He was our federal head. And his action is counted as our action. Now immediately someone says, it's not right that Adam's sin should determine my destiny. Well, in the first place, Adam's sin doesn't determine our destiny. It it hasn't determined mine. (laughs) By the grace of God, I have been taken out of Adam, the first, and placed in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, through the sovereign work of our great gracious God. That is sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. In the final analysis, it comes down to the sovereignty of God, what pleases Him. If He has done this, then this is, of course, what we must bow to. We can't fight it, we must bow to it. I'm delighted that we have this system, it is the finest thing that could have been thought by anyone for our situation. Let me just give you a couple of things that make me happy with God's work of the imputation of sin immediately. In the first place, if it were true that we're, we, that we all stand on our own probation individually, well, I'm afraid, knowing my own heart, I would have no confidence that I would not fall. In other words, if God said, I want it to be fair according to what you think fairness is. We'll separate you from Adam and we'll let you stand on your own probation. Well, if the first man fell, (laughs) then I wouldn't have no confidence that I would not fall. Matter of fact, I'm convinced that I would have fallen. You know, there is a group of beings who evidently have did have probation individually. And they fail. But the scripture says there is no redemption for them. I'm referencing the fallen angels. There is no plan of redemption for them. So I must say I'm happy with this system, for I am sure that I would have fallen. Furthermore, because we have a system of federalism in relation to Adam and the human race, it is reasonable to expect that God is, as a result of that, free to arrange a system of federalism between Christ and those who are his. So the fact that we have federalism in one case with Adam makes it possible for God to have federalism in the other case with Jesus Christ. So if one man stood for me and when he failed, I failed, then I'm happy to announce that one man died for me and when he died, I died and took away my sins. So I'm happy that I'm not called on to stand on my own. But God in his wisdom gave me another federal head. The first Adam accomplished a great failure, a great defeat for us. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, accomplished a great victory for us, for those who trust in him and him alone. When the father strikes oil, the children get rich, right? We don't object to that in our human experience. So if that's true, those who believe in Jesus Christ have hit a gusher. We've really struck it big (laughs) since he is our federal head because he has done something and what he has done has become mine. His atonement, his taking upon the full wrath of God has become mine since I and my substitute have borne the penalty in guilt and condemnation for sin. So the force of Romans 5.12 is that as a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, he was the federal head of the human race. The human race has, has had sin imputed to it, and as a result of sin, condemnation and death follow. Now, as I hurry on, concerning the second imputation, which is the imputation of the believer's sin to Christ, That is explained in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. You can reference it, and I'll just read it. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practises them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So here in this text... Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 Paul speaks about the imputation of the believer's sin to Jesus Christ If as a result of the fall of man in the garden of Eden I, am, I now am accounted by God to have fallen in him And to be in sin and under death and condemnation What I need is for someone to deliver me And it is again by an imputation An imputation of my sin into him and here we have, in Galatians, the imputation of the believer's sin to Christ. He says in verse 13 of Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Now, when that statement, having become a curse for us, we have Paul's statements concerning the imputation of the believer's sin to Christ. Notice that he has said we are guilty of sin, We have had imputed to us sin, condemnation, and death because of what Adam did. Now he says, Christ has become a curse for us so that the judgment of sin, condemnation, and death, which was our, has now been counted to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has become a curse for us. I like this system of imputation. Even though it wasn't good for me in the beginning. But it was given to me and by the grace of God now my sins have been given to Christ. That's the second of our imputation. Finally, in Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26, we have the third great act of imputation. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to believers. You see, God has to punish sin. Sin cannot go unpunished. For believers, it's been punished on the cross. Because Jesus took up on his full wrath. For unbelievers, it will be punished in the eternal lake, lake of fire forever and ever. So sin had to be punished. Not only did sin have to be punished, God wasn't just satisfied with sin being punished, we had to have the righteousness of Christ in us in order to stand before God. And so now I am confident and I'm happy that my sins have been paid for because they have been given to Christ. And not only that, righteousness has been given to me. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in his blood through faith. So the Father provides a satisfaction of his justice which secures our redemption from bondage to sin. Righteousness the past, the present, and future, is satisfied, and we go on to read in verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how is he the justifier? I just explained it. He's the justifier by giving us righteousness. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He, he, he's free because of that to pardon our sins and to give us a righteous standing before Himself, A righteous standing that enables us to stand before God. That is the third of the imputations. The imputations of righteousness to believers. So then there are three great acts of imputation. The imputation of Adam's sin to all men. The imputation of believer's sins to Jesus Christ. And then the imputation of the righteousness of God to the believers. This is the doctrine of imputation. It is the doctrine of federalism by which God, through the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ, justifies by grace alone those whom he brings to faith in the Lord Jesus. I hope you have seen from this... That there is salvation by grace alone. What is the depth of our sin? When we were in... When Adam was sinned in the garden, he put us in a position where we could do nothing to obtain the righteousness of God. That's the depth of our sin. Lost, doomed, without any hope, headed for a Christless eternity... And our individual sins only determines the level of torment that one will experience in hell. That's how deep our sins are. We are dead and without hope. And that's how deep it is. We ought to meditate upon that sometimes. In light of that, of the depth of our sins, then you ask the question, how much do we really need God? Well, he is our only hope. No other false god will do, no other system will do. He made provisions by sending one man, one God-man, to die for our sins. And since Jesus Christ has died, was buried and rose again, by his grace and his grace alone, we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. If we do not have his grace, it is impossible to be delivered from our sins. And that is how much we need him. So I plead with you, if you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him and realize the grace of God in your life. If you have received him, then I urge you to think of the depth of your sins and the fact that God has by his grace alone forgiven us and rescued us and really appreciate the amazing grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that your saints were edified. We pray that If someone is here and does not believe that they know the depth of their sin, that they know and sense that they really need you, and even realizing that is confirmation that grace and grace alone has been bestowed upon them. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your saints. We pray that they were edified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.